Real quick before I start the show today, I wanted to let you know that I now have a YouTube channel and I'm going to have new episodes of the show up on the channel as well as some short little clips here and there. You can find that at fairlyimportant.com slash YouTube or you can just go to YouTube and type in the words fairly important. I'll be sure to have a link in the show notes. Okay, on to the show. Hey, thanks so much for joining me today, and I hope you had a happy Easter. I'm going to be talking a lot about Easter today, and if you don't celebrate Easter, I want you to know that today's show is still for you, because I think that the Easter story is the most hopeful story in all of human history, and we are at a time where we could use some hope. You look at the world around us, and things happening culturally and socially and politically, and it can be easy to feel despair. And on the night when Christ was betrayed and ultimately crucified, I think that the disciples felt despair like few of us have ever gone through. They thought this man was going to be a king. They thought he was going to overthrow Rome. But instead, he was nailed to a cross to die the death of a criminal. And it just goes to show that a lot of times, God doesn't operate in the same way that you and I would. But thankfully, he had a wonderful plan in place. Now, there's a chance you're thinking, why are you talking about Easter? First of all, it already happened. And second of all, isn't your podcast more about those cultural things, those political things, those social and policy issues? Well, yeah, it is. But the reason that I have this show to begin with and the reason that I believe the things that I do on policy issues and social and cultural issues is because of how the Easter story has impacted my life. It is because of my faith in Jesus Christ that I believe the things that I do. And you may not have that same faith in Christ, but you might come from a worldview that is similar to mine, at least within the realm of your cultural views. So I'm talking about the Easter story today because it is the ultimate story of redemption, and we live in a world that is in great need of redemption. And some people think that that only happens through political means, or if it happens through some kind of an interaction with God, that can only be in some ethereal, spiritual, unknown way. But the Easter story is kind of part two of the Christmas story, where in the Christmas story, God himself took on human flesh and came into the world. The Easter story shows us how God, in human flesh, redeemed that world back unto himself. And I believe that is who my God is. He is a God who takes broken things and he redeems them, and he turns them into something amazing. Hey, thanks for joining me today. I'm Travis Rusco. This is a Fairly Important Podcast, Episode 17. Episode 17.
There's a few reasons I have this podcast. One of the reasons, and a very strong reason for having it, is because I look at the world and I consider the direction that things are going. And as a conservative, as a Christian, it's appalling to me. And it's something that I care about. And I want to get the word out about it. And I want to speak on these tough issues that a lot of times people would rather not talk about. The other part, though, and I've already alluded to it in mentioning that I'm a Christian, but the other part behind all of this is that my worldview is so intrinsically tied to my faith in Jesus Christ. And for anybody who hears me say that and who thinks, oh, okay, he thinks he's better than everybody. No, I don't. Literally every day, multiple times a day, I'm reminded of my own sinfulness and my own need for a Savior. And there's few times in the year when I'm reminded of that more than on Easter Sunday. And so I do talk a lot about the depravity that is happening in the world, but I have my own sins. I have things I need to repent of and that I do repent of. And really, the only reason I ever do anything that is good, if I can qualify it as good, the only time I ever do anything that's good or right is when when I get off my little made-up throne that I've created for myself in my made-up kingdom here on this earth, and I get off and I say, Sorry, God, um, you're the one who's supposed to be on the throne. Please work through me, because I'm going to screw this up trying to do it on my own. But I wanted to talk about the Easter story today, because when you consider the state of the world, everyone's looking for somebody to step into history and to save the day. But unfortunately, we tend to put that responsibility in the hands of sinful men and sinful women. And again, when I say sinful, I mean that in the same sense that I am sinful, that you are sinful, that we are all born with a sin nature. And that's not to say sinful people can't do great things, can't impact history, can't change the course of a culture because they do And I want this podcast to be something that encourages people to stand up and to do something and to make a difference. God uses sinful people every day. Because if he only used people who were without sin, then he couldn't use any any of us people. When we consider the great heroes of the faith, King David or Moses or Noah... They did great things, but David was an adulterer, Moses was a murderer, Noah was a drunk. They were sinful men. And today, just like in ancient times, just like we've always done, we look to human beings to fix everything. And that could be a politician, which I don't know why. Because they always lie, and they're typically not great role models. I shouldn't say that. There's there's probably good politicians out there. But oftentimes, as a politician or 
a philosopher or a medical professional, and when they fail, either morally or just out of an inability to do what we ask of them because they're not God, we're surprised. We are somehow surprised every time. And here's a question for you if if you if you need to try to figure out if you struggle with kind of having that misplaced hope in your own life. When the person you voted for loses an election, do you feel like the world's going to end? Because I've been there. I've done that on more than one occasion. And it's not to say we, you know, we shouldn't vote. It's not to say we shouldn't fight for causes that matter because I believe we should. But if you feel like everything's over when the man or woman you voted for lost, then you might need to reevaluate where your hope lies. And if you feel like all's lost when a politician loses or when they let you down, you might want to ask yourself if you think God's still in control because he is. And that might not mean we're going to understand what he's doing. In Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When I look at the world, I got to admit, I have no idea what God's doing. I have no clue what he's doing, but I know he's in control. Moral depravity is everywhere, and people who stand against it stand for traditional values. People who stand up for the gospel, the world hates you for it. And you can look at that and you can think that the end of the world's right around the corner. And I don't know, maybe it is. But I also think of the depravity in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the immorality, the bloodshed. It all happened then, just like it happens now. And while I don't know if the things happening today are a sign that, you know, a sign of the times, I do know I can agree with King Solomon that there's nothing new under the sun. Men and women have evil in their hearts today, just like they always did. And again, I'm talking about myself as much as I'm talking about anyone. And that's why no person can ever fix this. This world's only going to be fixed by the one who made it, by my Messiah. And it's funny just how little things really do change over the course of human history. Because you see, the Jewish people, they were expecting the Messiah to be a political savior. And today... Jewish people are still expecting the Messiah to be a political savior. Regardless of all the things in the Old Testament pointing to him being God, and regardless of how Isaiah 53 speaks in an insane level of detail about Jesus suffering on the cross, regardless of the fact that was considered a messianic prophecy for 1700 years, they expected the Messiah to be a political figure, and they still do. So it's no surprise that Christ's disciples, that his closest friends, that his closest followers expected him to overthrow Rome and to become their earthly ruler. 
And so the events leading up to his crucifixion and to his death obviously caught him by surprise. Obviously made them feel like the world was coming to an end. The same way it does when we think God's going to do things in a certain way, in a way we want him to. But then the way he decides to work scares us out of our wits. And so when I consider the Easter story, and it's not a story, it's a historical event that occurred and it changed everything. But when I think of the story of Easter, of course, there's the empty tomb. However, I also think about that dark night for Christ's followers. When they said, wait a minute, maybe maybe this isn't going to go exactly how we thought it was going to go. And so I'm going to spend some time now with some Bible talking about that dark night, starting in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 through 30. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood out of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So in this section, the disciples are celebrating the Passover with Jesus. And this is to remember when God freed the Hebrew slaves from Egypt through a series of plagues, which ultimately culminated in the final plague, which was the death of the firstborn Egyptian males. And God told Moses to have the Hebrews put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and lentil of their homes so that the angel of death would pass over their household, hence Passover. And Christ is telling his followers that he is the Lamb of God who will save them from death, who was prophesied about long, long ago. Not the kind of thing you expect from a king. He's telling them, I'm going to die. And not only am I going to die, but I'm going to die for you. So then we go to his arrest. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. 
Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. You know, when I think about this situation here, and maybe you didn't catch it, but when the soldiers say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. And this detachment of soldiers, these battle-hardened men, they draw back and they fall to the ground, simply at the words, I am he. Because this is God in human flesh. This is the I am who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And when you have that power to make a detachment of soldiers fall to the ground by saying three words, you have more than enough power to stop your own crucifixion. He says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Earlier in the garden, Christ was praying. He was deeply distressed. He was sweating blood, which by the way is an actual medical event that happens to people when they're under extreme levels of stress. It's called hematidrosis, I believe. Little capillaries under the surface of your skin pop open, and as you sweat, that sweat mixes with the blood, and it looks like you're sweating blood. Obviously, Christ wasn't looking forward to what was going to happen. And he asks the Father, if there's any other way, you know, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, your will be done. Again, here we have this man who is supposed to be, at least who these individuals thought was going to be a political messiah. Here he's being arrested and carried off to his brutal death. This is God working in ways that we would never choose to work. And here comes the worst part. Here comes the darkest part. Maybe you've been in a dark place this past year. Maybe COVID has taken somebody you loved. Maybe it was a diagnosis. These men here, the disciples, now experience the darkest thing they could ever possibly imagine and that they weren't even imagining was going to happen to their Messiah. And what I'm going to do 
is I'm going to pick up the darkest part of this story, starting in Matthew 27, verse 27. And before I read this piece of scripture here, I want to just briefly say that what Jesus does here in this moment, in this portion of scripture, is the most loving act that ever happened in human history. Because what he goes through here, what he experiences here in this moment, was not experienced because of something that he did. It was not experienced because of him being guilty of some crime. What he experiences here in this moment, in this very dark piece of scripture, he experienced to save me and to save you from the penalty of sin. What you're about to hear Jesus go through, he went through because a perfectly holy, pure, sinless, righteous God cannot allow sin in his presence by his very nature. And the only sacrifice that can cover any sin you have ever committed and any sin any human being has ever committed is the sacrifice of that perfect, spotless Passover lamb that was and is Jesus Christ. But of course, it's only going to allow you fellowship with God if you personally accept that sacrifice. And if you personally accept this thing that I am about to share with you that Jesus Christ did for you. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You! who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross, if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, 
but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Whatever you think of Jesus, love him or hate him, he did that for you. He did that for you. He did that for me. He did that for my wife. He did that for my children. He did that for my parents and my siblings and my friends and my family. He did that for you. And you might think to yourself, okay, that's a noble, unbelievably selfless thing for somebody to do for somebody else. And of course, history has its stories of sacrifice. We've seen people do amazing things over the course of history and give up their lives for the lives of others. But here we have something different in that it is the God who created us and the God who we rebelled against. Normally, when somebody is wronged, it is the offending party that is supposed to go and and make things right again. But in Christianity, it is the one who has been offended. It is God himself who stoops down and who condescends to wrap his holy, righteous body in human flesh. And he pays the price for what we've done. Now, had Jesus died on that cross and that was the end of the story, it would still be a powerful story. It would still be an example of great sacrifice and great love, but it would not be a story that impacted human history like it did, and it would not be a story that has any real impact on your life or on my life had it ended that day on that cross when he breathed his last breath. But something happened, and it is the reason that I believe He is worthy of my worship and your worship. He is worthy of telling me what I can and cannot do. He is worthy of being the one that I look to in the decisions that I make in life to see if I am honoring him with those decisions. And he is worthy to be the one and only that I come to and ask forgiveness and mercy from when I make decisions that do not honor him. So what was that? What was that thing that happened that made his death different than any other death that occurred in human history? Well, as I said, this is so dark. This is such a dark moment in history and a dark moment personally for his followers. In three days, 
after his crucifixion, three days after his lifeless body was cut through with a spear and blood and water flowed out, showing that that spear punctured the pericardial sac around his heart as well as the heart muscle itself. Three days after his lifeless body was thrown into that grave, some of his followers go there. And what they find is what makes Easter what it is and what makes Christ worthy of our worship and our devotion and our submission to him. And so we pick that up in Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, the Easter story is bigger than Jesus dying. In fact, every year the Jehovah's Witness stop by our house and they leave pamphlets and they say that they're inviting us to a celebration of Jesus's death because they don't believe that he rose again. The Easter story isn't the Easter story without Christ rising from the grave. 
And the Easter story doesn't have any impact on me and any impact on you unless Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And so you might think that today's episode was a tad out of the ordinary compared to other episodes that I've had. But actually, if you go back through the 17 episodes we've had so far, you would hear where I share again and again and again that my worldview all ties back to my faith. And my faith all ties back to what happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Obviously, to what happened throughout the course of the Old and the New Testament. But without what happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the things that happened from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the book of Revelation, they wouldn't lead to Christ. Not without the resurrection. And so again, when this world we're looking at seems so destroyed, when we see things happening culturally and socially that seem so out of whack, it can be easy to think hope is lost, but hope is not lost. Hope is alive in the risen Christ. And maybe this is the very first time in your life where you're coming to terms with that. Maybe you've heard it before, but you've never really made any decision around that for yourself. You have to make a decision. And to not make a decision is to make a decision. And here's how that decision works. If today you're confronted with the risen Savior... It doesn't matter that Easter has come and gone. A lot of Easter's have come and gone since he rose from the grave. But today, if you're hearing my voice and you're confronted with that, and if you're also confronted with your own sinfulness and depravity before God, Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If that is connecting with you right now, if you feel the Holy Spirit of God speaking into your heart right now, today is the day of salvation. And it's pretty simple. The words aren't magic. And praying the words and not meaning it and moving on with life as though nothing happened It's not how it works. It doesn't mean you'll be sinless because you won't. It doesn't mean you won't make bad decisions because those times happen in our lives. But if you pray this and you believe this and you accept this, Scripture tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's as simple as this if you're still tuned in. You can pray a prayer just like this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, I see today that not only did you die for my sins, but you showed that you have the power over sin and over death by raising from the grave. Lord, I accept your death on the cross as the payment for my sins. I believe that you were buried and rose from the dead three days later. Please, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. 
Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you prayed that, today is the day that you've been born again. Today is the day that you're a new creation in Christ. And again, I will stress, I do not know your heart. Only you and God know your heart. If you prayed that, if you believe that, please, it would give me so much joy if you would send me an email at Travis at FairlyImportant.com. T-R-A-V-I-S. That's Travis at FairlyImportant.com. And you can just tell me, I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior today. When you serve a God that cannot be killed, hope always remains alive. No matter what's happening in the world, no matter what's happening in your world, no matter what's happening with your health, if you serve a God who cannot be killed, who has power over death itself, hope is always alive. Thanks so much for tuning in today. It was a very different type of show, but I'm glad you stopped by, and I hope you join me again really soon. God bless. Hey, I bet you thought I was gone, but I'm not. And... Apparently, neither are you. If you don't mind, I'd love for you to do me a quick favor. Hit the subscribe or follow button in whatever podcast app you're using right now. I'll also ask you to review the show. If you do a written review, I might even read it on an upcoming episode. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, CastBox, Podcast Addict, or Podchaser, or at fairlyimportant.com slash love the podcast. Okay, I'm going to go for real now. You can go too.